0: Hey, critical thinkers, welcome to this new episode of Healthy and Awake podcast. And this episode is extra special because I had the honor of interviewing Dr. Peter McCullough, who is an internist, cardiologist, epidemiologist, holding degrees from Baylor University, University of Texas Southwestern Medical School, University of Michigan, and Southern Methodist University. He managed manages common infectious diseases, as well as the cardiovascular complications of both the viral infection and the injuries developing after, well, I won't even say the word. I got to be careful about certain words that I use today. And you might notice that throughout the episode, but I do want to get right into it. There's, this is an important subject. There's a lot to cover ahead. So, without further ado, Dr. Peter McCullough. Well, Dr. Peter McCullough, thank you so much for being here today. I don't want to waste any time. So, let's get right into it. This is a big topic that we're covering here, and I want to be very careful about how I approach this. So, for the past few years, we've heard really one side of the story, and I know there is more to the story. So, can you give me maybe some bullet points on what that other side might be?
1: You know, through the entire crisis, there seems to have been, from the very beginning, a narrative. There simply was a narrative. And if we go back in Peter Bregan's book, The Global Predators, We Are the Prey, and I wrote one of the introductions for it, he states that since 2012 going forward, in the back of the book he chronicles this, there there were 36 pandemic preparedness planning events, 36 of them, 25 Created written documents. You can read about how this was uh, being organized and planned. And then six of them were filmed. You can actually just watch the film. So let me give you a couple of landmarks. One is the 2005 PrEP Act, the PrEP Act that was written by HHS and Congress. And it said, we will have pandemics. There will be biological threats. And there was a whole list of organisms and possibilities. And When this happens, it will be a national emergency declared by the president, and it will be a public health emergency declared by the HHS secretary cabinet position. And then everything that's done in response to that will be considered a countermeasure, just like a military invasion. And importantly, what the Prep Act says is that all of the countermeasures will be free of any liabilities. That it's like a war. You know, if there was a war. And uh, army tanks were going down the street, and they they ran over your garden. It's sorry, you don't, they don't have any liability for ruining your garden on your front lawn. This type of idea that it's a war, and that countermeasures are free of liability. That's one of the, you know, that was a in a sense a planning event, and I think probably the most uh, poignant one was event two hundred one. And so, event two hundred one is in the fall of twenty nineteen. It involves some U.S. state senators. Our, our current director of national intelligence, Avril Haynes, was there. She wasn't in the role at that time. The CDC director from China, George Gao, he's a PhD uh, from China, come over. And they planned it all out. They said, listen, there's going to be a pandemic with exactly the, the virus that hits. And there's going to be a series of, of communications and messaging. The only thing that's going to work is going to be uh, using a an immunization strategy no no therapeutics will work and there will be misinformation out there this is event 201 there will be misinformation out there and it will drive hesitancy for people to come in and take these new these new injections and and so therefore we must be already on guard and have a very aggressive stance on this and then as the pandemic Played out. December tenth, twenty twenty, was the FDA Verback meeting that basically gave approval to the first uh, company to have their novel product move forward, you know, onto the market. And it was right. It was that day that the uh, British Broadcasting A- Agency uh, announced that they had the Trusted News Initiative, and they said they are going to stamp out dangerous misinformation. And this is before the products came out. So how did they know? How did they know ahead of time that somehow there would be alternative thoughts or alternative information? What we are basically being presented with was propaganda. Propaganda is a quick seize of power, meaning that one entity says, ha, I'm gonna hold the truth or information. So therefore anybody who opposes me, they will be immediately castigated as being incorrect, spreading misinformation, or spreading disinformation, which is using wrong information harmfully. So that is misinformation, it turns out, is a propaganda term. That's exactly what was done in Nazi Germany. So this government narrative, which rolled out all over the world, it wasn't a U.S. narrative. You can pick examples all over the world. This narrative rolled out, and as it turns out, my role in the great controversy was to provide America and the world a counter-narrative.
0: And we really appreciate that. And we have talked about Event 201 previously on the show. It is really eerie. I I encourage people to go, it's on YouTube to listen to it. And there does seem to be a deja vu happening. Uh, I've even seen uh, a bill passed or, or introduced in, I think, June of 2023, the Disease X Act, where Peter Hotez is, Dr. Peter Hotez is openly saying that this is a placeholder is it unreasonable to suspect that it's similar to what happened with event 201 and
1: coincidentally what actually happened all of these events that i mentioned i can fill in a few more in the, in the timeline 2012 darpa announces that it plans to an, end pandemics uh, in 60 days using novel genetic technology that in a sense they, you, you know our military would take these Products by injection intramuscularly, and they would end pandemics in 60 days. This is the novel platform, the fully pseudo uridinated ribodeoxynucleic acid. This is an extraordinary declaration. So, when Americans were told that, oh, these novel products came forward through Operation Warp Speed, you'd think somebody in the White House or the administration advisors would just do a little surge to see if there's anything on government websites saying that this was being developed far in advance. And anybody who just Googled this would quickly go on a government website. DARPA is the research unit of the military, and they would see the ADEPT P3 program. And they'd say, oh my gosh, the government was planning to use this type of technology to end pandemics in 60 days. That was a stated aspiration. And it shows the life cycle of of identifying the protein and having the genetic code and then be able to replicate it and produce it in high quantities, inject it and then have that code actually reproduce and then forms immunity. It's actually all drawn out in 2012. It's right there on the government website. So these types of revelations make people understand that, wait a minute, uh, this is all here, we've been deceived. And so uh, when the national emergency is declared in the United States, it's just a few days later that a novel biotech company announces that they actually have the genetic code for, for the organism and for the answer. And uh, you yeah, know, this is a company where the United States government owns 50 percent of the patent on this. The patents that are known were filed before 2016. And, and, and the COVID Select Committee, which is chaired by Brad Wenstrup and the House of Representatives, they're making considerable progress. They have got it down through a series of interviews and inquiries. They know that uh, one of the first kind of targets. Remember, when there's an investigation, there's uh, there are witnesses. People just giving information. There's subjects. There are people giving information, but they could be in trouble. And then there's targets. Now targets are people that we really think that they're at the heart of something that's gone wrong. The first person to spend some time there. Matter of fact, he was just on Capitol Hill ahead of me is former NIA director, Anthony Fauci, who faced Brad Wenstrup, who's from Ohio representative on this select committee. And uh, Fauci had two days of closed-door testimony. I l- literally followed him within, I think, 48 hours in Capitol Hill in Congress. And what we heard was that it was a series of deflections. I don't know, I can't recall, and what have you. And, and I did check, by the way, with my committee, as I was citing information you know and I, I you know I fielded questions for two and a half hours too. there's not a single time where I deflected. I answered them to the best of my ability, which is I think all all witnesses who come to um, to Washington. But the point is, fauci is a target in the inquiry on the creation of the sudden acute respiratory illness virus. now the second target. Is Dr. Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina Chapel Hill, (laughs) and he's been publishing on coronaviruses since the 1990s. Probably the most knowledgeable person on coronaviruses. And 2015 and 2016, he publishes two papers as the senior author. Vinit Menchieri is the first author, and it it states they declared the creation. So the papers describe the creation of the virus, which is a chimeric organism partially bat, partially human. And they call it a Wuhan Institute of Virology 1 SARS-like COV virus. That's what they call it. And it has all the characteristics of what got people sick in the world. This is in 2015, 2016, Nature Medicine Proceeds in Ashkamea Sciences. In the papers, they thank NIAID The National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases, that's run by Dr. Fauci, the Eco Health Alliance, Dr. Peter Daszak, and Dr. Ji Zhengli, the Bat Lady in Wuhan. In the papers, they state it's gain-of-function research. They state right in the papers, and it was started before the Obama administration ban on gain-of-function research. Now, fast forward to 2021, Dr. Ralph Barx being interviewed. They said, "Wait a minute." people got sick with the, it looks like the virus that you created. Barrick says, no, it wasn't the virus I created, but I'm not releasing the, the genetic code for what we found. Now, normally the genetic code is released to federal databases. So researchers can study it. It's our federal dollars who paid for this. And Barrick says, no, we're not going to release that. To, and, we, and the NIH has advised us not to release it because the code likely matches or very closely matches what came out of Wuhan? Mm-hmm. So, the, the, the targets, in my view, are Anthony Fauci, spend plenty of time on Capitol Hill, we'll spend more. Peter Dasick at the EcoHealth Alliance. Now, yesterday, Brad Wenstrup issued a press release, and he said that the, the Department of Health and Human Services and Xavier Becerra is intentionally blocking and obstructing Congress by not disclosing the relationships between HHS and Peter Dasick, particularly the financial relationship. Peter Desick runs the EcoHealth Alliance. They employ dozens and dozens of scientists, and they're in the business of shuttling genetic plans from US research labs to do the work over in Asia and China. Most recently, Desick is taking plans to work on more bat viruses with Duke University in Singapore. So we have Anthony Fauci, Peter Desick. We have Ralph Barrick at the University of North Carolina Chapel, who's always quiet now on this. And he gave video after video from 2012 forward about how these types of organisms can cause pandemics. And the last one is Doctor Shi Ling in Wuhan, China. Those four. Keep your eyes on them. We're constantly being distracted. Oh, look over here and look over there, and it comes out of nature. No, this is clear. This was a U.S.-Chinese collaboration, and we can't be deceived. The, the emails that Fauci and Collins and Christian Anderson. Kurt Rambuck, Eddie Holmes, they were all involved in this early on. Instead of a genuine inquiry on where the virus came from, they were immediately starting to cover their tracks. So things are not as they seem. And we know from the very beginning
0: that they've been trying to control information around this. I know with the Twitter testimony with the, the lawyer, Vijaya, she said that she was testifying about the censorship of Harvard doctors, Harvard epidemiologists, and and they admitted to censoring doctors speaking out about this. One of the things that I've heard you talk about is HIV false positives. And another thing from the very beginning, the so-called conspiracy theorists were talking about this. and, And Dr. Zev Zelenko even said very specifically, he went into some of the details about speculation that this might happen. Were the conspiracy theorists just coincidentally correct about this, or was there a reasonable line of thinking that could have led somebody to go, hey, this might actually happen?
1: The term conspiracy theory is really not in our vernacular, shouldn't be. Uh, The correct term is rational theory. We're rational theorists. When we're presented with new information, we're trying to put things together. We come up with rational theories, projections of what could have happened, and then we need to discuss them. So there's a great video out. If you go to www.rationaltheory.com, I'm in the video. I didn't realize it, but it really handles this issue of terms. I mean, I think we should just immediately uh, pick these uh, propaganda terms, these weaponized terms, call them out and dispose of them. We can't be finger pointing this. So misinformation, disinformation, anti-science, those are all propaganda terms terms. They don't exist. They're simply scientific and clinical observations and multiple points of view. That's it. Recently, misinformation became a mesh term in National Library of Medicine, PubMed, as if it's a new medical term. Uh, major universities like Northwestern are having misinformation conferences. American Board of Internal Medicine, WHO, many health agencies say the biggest threat to global health is not heart disease or cancer or diabetes, it's misinformation. So you right. can see how things are being propagandized. With science, Dr. Peter Hotes, his entire lecture platform is the deadly rise of anti-science. We might as well say, I'm more concerned about the deadly rise of, uh, of uh, authoritarianism and totalitarianism and propaganda. Science is a process and it's a process we use to basically generate new knowledge. It's not, there's nobody's science or anti-science. It's just, it, these are antithetical terms. Yeah. Hotez plays a role in this. It's very interesting. Uh, you know, from the very beginning, he's been a CNN commentary. I've commentator. I've been on ABC, but, but largely on Fox Newsmax. I was, during the pandemic, I was on well over a hundred times on national TV, really advising America on what was going on. So Hotes was on the other channel. And he was always be pretending to be surprised, like, wow, this organism is showing us a new twist and turn, and this looks dangerous, and I'm scared. He would come on with a mask and try to scare everybody. It turns out he had research grants with Fudong University. This is on the books with the National Institute of Health. Back in 2016 and 2016 2017, guess what? For biodefense products for the virus that we all got. So he was in on it the entire time. So when he went on Joe Rogan, yeah, and then and then Robert F. Kennedy went on Rogan and said, listen, why, why don't you bring him on? Matt, I couldn't help. I messaged Rogan. I said, listen, leave Kennedy out of it. He's not a doctor. He's not gonna he's a lawyer running for president. And he needs to do that. I said, listen, I I'm i I'm senior to hotels. I've got more publications that he does and more kind of worldwide recognition. I said, but I said I'd be happy to sit down with him and we'll discuss safety of the mass utilized novel products. And this has been suggested. And Hotez immediately went on Johns Hopkins TV, and they said, this isn't how uh, science is advanced by discussing things like this. This is not what we do. I don't want the public uh, or your listeners to ever be confused by this. Misinformation, disinformation, science, this anti-science, conspiracy theory, these are propaganda terms. Don't use them, and we need to elevate uh, above it. What we're doing today is we're generating rational theory. Now listen, the people I'm mentioning, they're under house investigation by a select committee. It's not just my opinion or your opinion. I couldn't
0: agree more, and you're speaking my language. We talk a lot on this show about propaganda, and and I use that uh, conspiracy theorist term kind of tongue- in cheek, but you're completely right and I know a lot of doctors, many of whom are very much like Dr. Peter Hotez. He may be putting on some kind of show and acting surprised, but there is really a religious fervor that you can Mm. feel when you talk to some of these doctors. Do you think there's going to be a straw that breaks the camel's back?
1: No, you, you hit the right word, religious fervor. The other term people use is ideology. So this goes back before Edward Jenner. There was attempts to inoculate with cowpox, sera from cowpox, actually nursemaids and others were, were trying to do this. Then Edward, January, Edward did the first formal attempt at this, try to make a, a smallpox immunization. And then it went on to to Louis Pasteur and they kept going and going. And then we had certainly the great polio epidemic in the United States. And I still see some patients who have the residual effects of polio. But in each one of these diseases, the diseases markedly went away long before the mass utilized products. This is very important. For instance, polio went away as the water supply was cleaned up. In areas that still don't have clean water, those are the areas that that have cases. And the CDC, uh, right on its website, Says that the the parentally administered polio product does not stop transmission. This is right on his website. So uh, we would know that a whether it was an oral polio or an injectable polio that these didn't end the polio pandemic. Clean water supply did. We know that with pertussis and diphtheria, they're easily treated with a Z pack. So we couldn't tell if we had these illnesses or not. You know, antibiotics are so widely used for productive bronchiolitis and bronchitis conditions. Other conditions are very low risk. So for instance, measles is, is simply a, a skin rash. An occasional, very, very rare, debilitated child with lung disease could get a secondary pneumonia. And there are some measles deaths that may occur in, 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 in third world countries, but not in the United States. It, it would be all very supportable antibiotics that would be handled and we can go down the list. Tetanus, deep tissue wounds are very modern ways of managing it. Haemophilus influenza B, very few cases. Of it. The vast majority of hemophilus is non-typeable, so it's not even covered by the mass-utilized products. And you can get down to some other illnesses where one could see some advantage. For instance, hepatitis B. If a woman who's actively drug-abusing or actively has hepatitis B then we'd want to protect the baby from vertical transmission with an injection on day one. But, so we're talking maybe a handful of babies ought to get a hepatitis B injection, but not the entire country. And for let's say for diphtheria, pertussis, haemophilus, I would add in a pneumococcus and influenza. That could be appropriate for a child with cystic fibrosis who has terrible baseline lung disease. Uh, I saw a patient today in the office with idiopathic pulmonary fibrosis on oxygen. Let me tell you what it would be appropriate to to get any type of protection in her, but not to mass cover the entire population who doesn't who doesn't need it. And what we're finding is with these products that that we don't have large prospective double-blind randomized placebo control trials and where we do have it, the performance is disappointing in terms of efficacy. Uh, or reduction in in transmission, and the fervor behind it is really more an ideology and the ideology goes like this: that the human condition, the human body is frail and inherently susceptible to infectious diseases, and through mankind's brilliance, these products can make the human body better and stronger and more resilient, so it's really a triumph of man over. Over in nature, so there's a whole ideology to this, and but these are, but the products aren't perfect. So to really make this be a triumph for mankind, we have to give it to everybody, even if people who don't need it, we have to give it to everybody, and then it's extended one uh, step further, So "Listen, we're going to do this to eliminate diseases, eliminate them. Polio is going to be eliminated. Smallpox is going to be eliminated." And with some hope that maybe uh, we'd eliminate all the threats to, to mankind. So it's an ideology right now. And with the most recent set of products, you know, they've been on for three years. And in my Substack Courageous Discourse, my, my co-author, John Leak, who's a historian, he has one Substack regarding the papal coin. I'm not sure if you've seen this. I don't think so. So the Vatican actually issued a coin. And it's a picture of a little boy who's sitting, his arm is exposed, and he's being administered one of these products in almost a religious manner. Mm, wow. And, it, and in the sense it's deifying these yeah. products and that this is again, a religious experience to get one of these products. And it's really, the coin is really striking. You can't make this up that, that the, the Vatican. Would do something like this. These are brand new genetic transfer technology programs. No one would ever know if they would ever work, if they're safe. And how could this be memorialized in a in a Vatican City coin? This uh, this again. The ideology is extraordinary. There's a picture I should share with you. I have it on my phone, and it, it, it someone sent it to me. And it was a large yellow banner with red writing. And it was on one of the old cathedrals in Europe, made up been Notre Dame. And it said, it, it said, even the blood of Jesus won't save you from the illness. Wow. Get, get the product. Yeah,
0: yeah. Talk about propaganda.
1: Yeah, get the product. So this idea of don't even count on your religion to save you. The only thing that can save you is the novel Products that came forward with Operation Warp Speed. There it is on a cathedral. So you can't make it up. I I think the ideology, the religious nature of it, the doctors are not thinking rationally on this. And we just saw example after example. One of the most concrete examples on my Substack is a paper written by an ethicist. And it dealt with the uh, issue of using these novel products in transplant candidates and transplant recipients, people who got a kidney transplant or heart transplant. And it's, it's it's a paper about ethics. And the paper from the very beginning makes the presumption that they will be safe and they will be effective. Presumption. And so with that presumption, why everybody should take it. And from the very beginning, as a doctor, I'd say, wait a minute, this is the genetic code to install a foreign protein inside cells, it's gonna be expressed on the cell surface. The body will immediately t- attack its own cells in autoimmunity. And in transplant patients, we give um, uh, prednisone, tacrolimus, microphenolate, typically three drugs, to basically impair the immune system. The last thing we wanna do is rev up the immune system to attack the organs. And that's precisely what these products would do. And 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 just the oblivion of this ethicist and the transplant doctors, complete oblivion to this, is uh, is extraordinary. And my podcast this week is um, a show featuring Don uh, Halpert, great guy from Canada, and he received a kidney transplant through the pandemic. I think everybody should go to McCullough Report and listen to that. He's a really yeah. articulate guy. I'm not gonna I'm not gonna spill the uh, storyline of what happened, but it's real interesting.
0: Well, I'll definitely link to that in the show notes. Thanks for the heads up. I do, I had a few other thoughts with what you said. We are going to address specifically the propaganda around these topics on an episode ahead, as well as de individuation, which I've heard you talk about by a different name where mm-hmm. a formation can happen amongst mm-hmm. groups. So we're going to explore that further and how the environment and different aspects of the environment and the culture can contribute to really the fostering or the blossoming of these ideologies in such a a religious fervor type of way because i've spent a lot of time talking to these types of people and and in some sense they can be very logical they say yes there's corruption yes there's financial conflicts of interest yes there have been catastrophes like the thalidomide catastrophe and so many more and then when it comes to this there's just a complete halt and it it's Hmm. just it's like blatant acceptance no matter what no question and, and i well, just find uh, that curious
1: you're raising the issue of trading lives and this is still on the american board of internal medicine website now the novel products come out in december of 2020. the american Board of internal medicine which actually certifies all internal medicine doctors and medical subspecialties such as gastroenterology cardiology so they're actually responsible for the credentials of a lot of doctors in the united states in december of 2020 again they presume that they're safe and effective. And they said, listen, all of you should take it and you should take a selfie of you taking it and share it with your patients to promote it to your patients in December of 2020. Now, at that time, there was two to three months of follow-up, no one knew long-term if these were gonna be safe or not. And and to do that, and then on their website, as it clocked in, I don't know, a year or or so later, Richard Barron, who's the CEO of ABIM, who's now announced his retirement, he says about 6,000 people have died with the novel products. About 6,000. Number 5, 10, 15, 50, it would be off the market. I've been on data safety monitoring boards where it work with a sponsor in the FDA. They said, listen, if you have two unexplained deaths, this product is gone. Yeah. The clinical trial. 6,000. And then the rationalization is there's been so many people who died with the illness. Right. So, uh, How do we parse that? Yeah, this notion of small price to pay. Now, small price to pay, that maps right back again to the Third Reich. That was said, remember, a small price to pay for the Aryan race. And you know this is this type of very dark thinking. We don't trade lives like this. We would never ask anybody to go into a center or a pharmacy, take one, and then die. We would never ask for that to happen. Now, on our CDC adverse event website, if we toggle over and just look at look at just Americans, we're at over eighteen thousand Americans wh- wh- who have died after taking it, and the doctors think that the new products are the cause, they complete the forms. I completed two today, by the way, so I've completed my share of these. And we give all the information when the first product was given, the second one, the dose, the lot numbers, the clinical vignettes, our name, our office number, everything's there. And believe me, this is, this is punishable. Uh, false information is punishable by federal imprisonment or fines. You know, doing a various report is very serious business. So what we know here is over 18,000 where the doctors or paramedics or healthcare workers report, only, I think it's 14, former paper by Meisner and colleagues, only 14% of entries are they done by the patients or their families. But of those 18,000 that the CDC knows about, 50 are on the same day they take it. Like within a few hours, people yeah. walk into a pharmacy and within a few hours, it's, they've succumbed. Another 1,200 occur on the next day. That 18,000 in, in FDA testimony is underreported by 30-fold. I can't report the cases unless I have the vaccine card. I can't, couldn't report a death. And so uh, without that administration card. And so when we do the math there, we're looking at 550 plus thousand Americans have died with the mass public campaign. That's worse than any war. Uh, Even the number of deaths with the pandemic illness is coming in at about 1.2 million in the United States. Our CDC says about 10% were directly due to the infection adjudicated and 90% there were other contributing factors. Some people were beyond their life expectancy, about 40% were beyond life expectancy. So we're talking about clearly 120,000 avoidable deaths. I think largely if they would have gotten early treatment and the McCullough Protocol early, that would have been the answer. But over 550,000 who have died with one of, the, one of the government responses, the premier government countermeasure, they've died with it. You know, Even former President Trump said, let's not let the cure be worse than the disease. In fact, that's the case. In my practice today, the cure, the mass administered products every six months are far worse than the disease itself. And people have used the word kind of post-acute sequelae. Uh, or long hauler, mm-hmm. uh, in a paper by D. Exner and colleagues, the vast majority of post-acute sequelae long hauler, it's due to the injectable products.
0: So this brings up some interesting questions about things like informed consent. And I don't know if I read this correctly. I saw something about an IRB just seeming to remove informed consent for clinical investigations. My friend, Dr. Jack Cruz shared that. I don't know if you've seen that but even that aside it does seem based on what we know now that informed consent wasn't exactly what we had and i you know if i can't say this word i'll remove it but people do talk about nuremberg when we think of these things do you have any thoughts about this sort of thing
1: when we look at medical ethics as they apply to novel products there's there are we have the office of human research protections ohrp who's been very silent, by the way, through the entire process, we have the Declaration of Helsinki, which says that everyone should have free, that is without any pressure or coercion, free, full, fully disclosed, informed consent. That—that That is a principle of the Declaration of Helsinki. It has to be for everything. I saw patients today, and each time we work with them, we do have to provide that. And then during Nazi Germany, with all the atrocities that happened, remember Haber won the Nobel Prize for the invention of nerve gas. And Nobel Prize was actually became part of the atrocities of Nazi Germany. There's a parallel today with Kariko and Weissman, who won the Nobel Prize for pseudo-eurodination. We may get a chance to get get to that. But the point is, in in Nuremberg, and if you go to uh, Nuremberg, Germany, I recently went there and I spoke. So I went to Courthouse 600. So I had a chance to review the documents. That th- there were Nazi doctors on trial, and there was about they had about 70 attorneys defending them, and Americans largely conducted the proceedings. Uh, but the majority of the doctors, they said, "Listen, we were just following orders." Yeah. So what came out of Nuremberg was the code, and this is the code of ethics as it applies to experiments, because largely what the Nazi doctors said is we're conducting experiments. Mm-hmm. And point number one of the Nuremberg Code is no one under any condition may receive any pressure, coercion, or threat of reprisal for participating or not participating in research or accepting a a novel emergency authorized product. And yet quickly after these rolled out, people started to feel coercion. They were told, listen, they you're not going to have a job. You can't go to work. You can't travel. This became very serious coercion all over the world. There some parts of the world, they said, listen, you're not going to get your social security check unless you take these. And it wasn't just one time. People took, with one product, the adenoviral product, they took one one administration. I thought that was it. And, and then with the other uh, novel product, the ribodeoxynucleic acid products, they were uh, told, listen, you take a primary series. The first one, and then two to four weeks later, the next one, and that's it's over with. But then, within a few months, we said no, they they really don't work. So you have to take one in six months, and take another one, and another one. And if we counted up, if someone's actually following this exactly as the guidance indicates, they would actually be on their twelfth administration. Yeah, that's now, crazy. Product that's designed to get any modicum of immunity would take a series of twelve. And so, you know, I, I'm so dumbfounded by this. I did a Twitter poll and I said, does anybody know? At the time I did it, I think we we're at seven. I said, does anybody know, anybody around them who took seven? And you know what? You know what the answer was? It was about 9% of respondents said, yeah, I know somebody who's at seven. I said, who are these people? They said, you know what? We're Canadian healthcare workers. Oh, wow. So there's parts of the world where they had just been one after another. I, I saw a man in my office, a U.S. government contractor this week. He had taken five. And at the fifth one, develops raging myopericarditis, and it's just mm. ruined. So each one is a, a Russian roulette.
0: I do know people from the very beginning, you know, with, with the hysteria that were saying, I, I would do it every month if they told me to, which is mind-boggling to think about. But But with what you said, it does sound like, even the most well-intentioned of doctors might be implicated if if there is some kind of breaking point and and people really do wake up to this. Is that right?
1: Yeah, I, I think that the people will be looking for plausible deniability. I was just following orders. Yeah. There's a big psychological component here. Most of the doctors took them. They took them. So today I had a patient came from out of town. He had taken I I believe two of these. And he he goes into heart failure. He's actually admitted to the hospital with heart failure. He has a reduced left ventricular ejection fraction, goes through all these tests. Oh, heart catheterization, echocardiography, cardiac MRI, all of this. The two administrations are never mentioned. They never measure any blood tests to see if that would indicate that's the cause. His case is a mystery. And he's put on medications and he navigates in there and And one of his questions is, Dr. McCullough, how come none of my doctors mentioned it could be from taking the novel products? I said, there's 800 papers in the peer-reviewed literature on this. This is plain as day. It's the first thing you think of. I said, it's because the doctors took them themselves. They can't psychologically come to grips that this is really happening. They took it themselves. They encouraged their families and their patients to have it. Now it's causing terrible problems. Uh, that last guy I finished with, he had a pacemaker required effort. Now he's stuck with a pacemaker the rest of his life. The, 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 and, and the perverse nature of why would cardiologists even recommend these to begin with? But you know, the American College of Cardiology has a position statement on this. Why would they have a position statement on this? Why not pneumococcal or influenza or haemophilus? Why this one? Why does the uh, American College of Obstetrics and Gynecology, which has always been very, very careful on this, with these novel products, with no large prospective randomized trials, no safety data whatsoever, why would they say that a pregnant woman could take this at any time during pregnancy? It was the only product ever in the history of gynecology where you could just take it any time. You could take it on the, the two, a day before you deliver. What a disastrous idea, e- even from the sense of, a product that once it's taken into the body can cause fever. Fever is the most common uh, trigger to precipitate a miscarriage, a stillbirth, or a preterm delivery. It's, it would, it's, just, it's just a reckless recommendation. It's just purely reckless. If there was a novel product that came out for Epstein-Barr or herpes, and, and just, well, just take it any time. It would be equally as reckless. And we're starting to see this now. There is a respiratory syncytial virus vaccine, a prefusion protein vaccine by Pfizer. Now, the clinical trials did administer it weeks 32 through 36 for the theoretical benefit to the baby, not for any benefit to mom. And this has been launched now. And I, I published it on my substack. Fewer than 10% of women are taking it, thankfully. Yeah. But the published data, and we have a paper in press on this, suggests it triggers premature delivery. So, you know, to take a novel product for the purposes of theoretical benefit to a baby and trigger, pre- and then be stuck with a premature baby, and, you know, when babies are born premature, barely there's intracranial hemorrhage and all kinds of abnormalities, sometimes cerebral palsy, the risks are just too high. And what's driving this is this religious zeal for this ideology. I've even had some doctors within the Orthodoxy say, well, Dr. McCullough, don't you believe in them anymore? This isn't something you believe in or not believe in. It's like, we have to review the evidence. And as an internist and cardiologist, I consult on pregnant women and other disease, the other categories we're talking about. We should be conservative, it's safety first.
0: Yeah, it is the antithesis of caution to say, hey, just go for it. And for those who might be skeptical that this sort of thing would go on here in America, there's a really good book called Target Africa that talks about in Africa, the types of experimentation that went on with pregnant women. I I highly encourage checking that one out. But assuming there is a big kind of breaking point, what do you think medicine and healthcare looks like once we get on the other side of this?
1: Well, tobacco, I can tell you what the breaking point was. Tobacco is a good uh, example. Uh, from the time it was a European scientist who proposed in 1929 that tobacco caused lung cancer, smoking caused lung cancer. It was about 20 years later, Sir Austin Bradford Hill published the, Brad, the Bradford Hill Tenets of Causality, concluded smoking caused lung cancer. You know, we made it all the way till 1999 before there was a tobacco settlement. I mean, that's a long time. That's 70 years. You know, doctors were smoking cigarettes. Doctors were advertising cigarettes, right. advertising cigarettes. Mm, sounds familiar, right?
0: Doctors smoke uh, camels.
1: Yeah. And remember the Pulitzer Prize winning book by Mukherjee called The Emperor of All Maladies. Uh, he's describing this lead surgeon at Johns Hopkins smoking during the operating room. And, and they, people would ask him, well, doesn't smoking cause lung cancer? No, it doesn't. And he was smoking and taking out these lung cancers. And in the end, he gets lung cancer himself and dies. And he still doesn't. Admit that smoking causes lung cancer. So when doctors get into an ideology like they did with smoking, it's a disaster and it takes a long time. In the end, it becomes a mega settlement and you almost need a new generation of doctors. Now we're three years into this one and and you haven't seen a chief of medicine come out from the Mayo Clinic or a prestigious institution and said, we were wrong. We got to stop these. You haven't seen a single one. Now, they're not coming out and saying, listen, they're the greatest things ever. Keep taking them. They're largely in this complicit silence. It's
0: disturbing. Well, I have what might be a weird question. Uh, I know in the very beginning of the pandemic, uh, a lot of people were laughing at Trump for suggesting something about bleach. And I heard you talk about this, saying that he basically couldn't articulate a, a legitimate medical practice. And another one that he couldn't exactly articulate, he said something about intravenous UV light. And that I I looked it up. There are some legitimate medical papers going as far back as the 1930s. This was a legitimate thing that disappeared after the introduction of antibiotics. I I know there's no well, as far as I know, there's no specific research on that for the problems we face today. Theoretically, is there anything possibly
1: to that? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think the people advising uh, former President Trump was it was just a disaster. Why didn't they call me? The history would have been so much different. Good Lord. What he was trying to describe is sodium hypochlorite, meaning if you take a, a cup of water and put a drop of bleach in it, and you can actually gargle with it and use it as a wash and spit it out. And it has anti-infective properties against Epstein-Barr virus, cytomegal, other organisms. It's part of the American Dental Association sets of recommendations for Viral gingivitis. I mean, this is not an unusual thing. Okay, now there's other products. There's dilute uh, povidone iodine in the mouth. We can use a uh, dilute uh, hydrogen peroxide. The Scope Listerine have very good data. Uh, the point is, you know, mouthwashes and gargles are clearly anti-infective. Clearly, so if one had one of these infections, why wouldn't we start gargling about every thirty minutes? And of interest, the nasal sprays are also very effective. Now, when there's a sore throat, there's always an early population of the variants in the nose. There, throughout the pandemic, there's over 20 studies, 17 randomized trials, dilute povidone iodine, colloidal silver, xylitol-based products. They all worked. They, they worked impressed. They were actually more impressive than most therapeutics or injectables. It was, it was really amazing. And now they have to be done every four hours. We're talking large. High quality, prospective, randomized, double-blind, controlled trials. And when Nancy Mace, who's a Republican congresswoman, she found out about this in 2021, there was a news piece in Epoch Times. She said, why is our government not telling us about this? Well, it's worse than that. In my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, we have a whole chapter that we dedicate to Nate Jones, who's the CEO of the company Clear, X-L-E-A-R and he describes where he just was applying to the FDA to do research on nasal sprays and gargles and immediately the the federal trade commission sued his company they tied him up in courts Th- that and the same thing happened with the manufacturer of Cofix RX and on so there was active suppression of any nasal sprays or gargles and uh, you mentioned former president Trump he also um, you know he also proposed a, a common oral drug for, that we use for malaria, rheumatoid arthritis, systemic lupus, based on prior data with sudden acute respiratory syndrome virus. And he was immediately ridiculed and, you know, again, wasn't well supported by experienced doctors. And he should have stayed on these, the nasal sprays and gargles, the generically available oral anti-infective, simple vitamins like vitamin D played a role. Yeah. It had to be used higher vitamin D, vitamin C, zinc, polyphenol supplement quercetin. You know, it was very interesting, even famotidine, which is an antihistamine acid available over the counter, this pepcid, in a large study by Mura and colleagues from University of Virginia, 20,000 people, that reduced the risk of need for oxygenation, hospitalization, and death. So it was always part of the McCullough protocol to get things over the counter. People say, well, I can't get any antiviral. I said, yeah, you can. Go buy some famotidine. It's at every pharmacy out there. It's over the counter. Now, in other countries, it's prescription. But I said, yeah, you have antiviral. You don't need to, You don't even need to get a prescription to treat this problem if you actually use the nasal sprays and gargles and what's called the OTC bundle of the McCulloch Protocol. People immediately wanted to start gobbling pills and what have you. And so the nasal hygiene, I'm glad you asked about that. It's just so important. We don't use sodium hypochlorite, although I did learn, I interviewed anti-infective dentist Paul Gossett and they were using it extensively in dental clinics because actually they were afraid of, of acquiring the illness by working in people's mouths. And, and they end up using either palvadone, iodine, sodium, hypochlorite, peroxide. They use something in every case and it worked.
0: I wonder why they would want to suppress these things. Something to think about. I have a whole bunch more questions for you, but I know we're getting close to time here. So is there anything else that we have not yet discussed that seems important to talk about?
1: Well, I think we need to talk about disease X. Uh, you mentioned it early on. Disease X is not a real virus. It's a theoretical disease, but boy, the World Economic Forum, the World Health Organization. Now there's an entire book out by a former coalition for epidemic preparedness and innovation, CEPI author is out. And the whole goal of, of creating disease X is to create the countermeasures, monoclonal antibodies, therapeutics, injectable forms of products to try to create immunity. This is extraordinary. This is an industry now of create the threat and create the answer. We're no longer hearing about nuclear weapons and defense shields. We're hearing about biological threats and countermeasures. And there's a lot of power and there's a lot of money in this business. And Americans and people over the world are scared to death. there is no control over these biolabs. There's no safety inspections. There's no control over gain-of-function research. United States, there's a federal ban on funding gain-of-function research, but privately funded gain-of-function research is perfectly legal in the United States. It's going on all over. So when I've testified in in multiple state capitals and they say, well, Dr. McCullough, what can we do? I say, why don't you do an inventory of your gain-of-function research programs you have going on in your In your labs, in your universities, that is creating organisms that are more infectious and more lethal on purpose to get humans sick. Why don't you do an inventory of this and make some decisions? Do you want this going on in your backyard? Because all we need is another safety breach, and this—you know—the origins of a next threat could be could be the United States or it could be anywhere in the world. These bio labs—it's like having a bunch of kind of nuclear weapons. Facilities out there, and nobody's keeping track of them. Did you hear about the Chinese bio lab that was up, that was in California, and nobody knew about it?
0: Yeah, I think that was James O'Keefe who who broke that story. It's insane.
1: Yeah, so we need we, you know, in my view, gain-of-function research is not science for science' sake. This idea of getting ahead of the next pandemic is is not tractable. Uh, We should shut down gain-of-function research. We should shut down bio labs that are in the business of making disease X. Uh, we should prevent disease X from being a disease as opposed to cheering it on and then trying to uh, make money on the pandemic response. People really have to get ahead of this right now. This biopharmaceutical complex is running the table. It's did it with, it's done it with the pandemic illness. It's doing it with respiratory syncytial virus and right now. We saw a strong attempt with monkeypox and mm-hmm. now disease X. We've seen enough now. We, we've seen the playbook here of create something in the lab have people get sick, create a lot of fear around this, and then be able to use this in the context of a medical emergency to actually apply pressure and gain control over free living people. And I think we should reject it.
0: It does seem like there are incentive structures in place to cause a ruckus, perhaps. And uh, I, I made, I think it was my last episode, we took a deep dive into Disease X. And it's made for even the most skeptical people. So if you're listening to this and and you really understand, and but you know someone who doesn't really get it, I encourage you to check that episode out and and maybe share it with others. But Dr. Peter McCullough, where can people find out more about you and the work that you do?
1: Well, go to my website first, petermcculloughmd.com. That'll take you everywhere. I got the top doctor account on Twitter of doctors who see patients every day. And I'm also on Gutter, True Social, Telegram. And uh, check out my book, Courage to Face COVID-19, Preventing Hospitalization and Death While Battling the Biopharmaceutical Complex, and it's got its own website. It was banned on Amazon, by the way, for about 12 days and uh, for offensive content, which didn't exist. And fortunately, we, we were able to overcome it with a lot of public pressure. But you know, why did Amazon ban our book? It's because we were right over the target of the biopharmaceutical complex. Check out my podcast, America Out Loud Talk Radio, McCullough Report, every Saturday and Sunday, 2 p.m. Eastern, and the Apple iHeart Podcast Network the following week. And then my Substack, Courageous Discourse Substack. I write it with bestselling author John Leake. It's one of the best and most popular Substacks out there. About 90% of the content is free. And all the graphical abstracts, all the citations I gave today, find it on Courageous Discourse. I've just simply stay within the peer-reviewed literature. I'm one of the most published people in the pandemic era on the pandemic crisis and the response of anybody in history. And I am the most published person in history on the interface between heart and kidney disease. And I got to tell you right now, I've been a true north. I've been a beacon of really just the facts as they lay out, the timeline that is laid out. And I've cha- challenged people. I, I have more media time than Anthony Fauci or most presidential candidates. Find a media reel where I was wrong or I flip-flopped or I backtracked. You can't find it because I've been true to the data. I'm Dr. Peter McCullough, Dallas, Texas. Thank you so much for having me.